happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, this is, of course, part two of our episode on Jean-Baptiste Denis and the development of blood transfusions in 17th century Paris. Could call it part deux since it's very French. Uh, today we are jumping right into part two of this story and uh, the work that Denis was doing developing transfusion techniques. If you have not listened to the first part, this one is going to be super confusing. So we definitely recommend that you do that because we're getting right back to the action. Uh, if somehow you have not listened to the first part of this, but you have listened to the Way Back in the Archive interview called Bloodwork, which has some of the same themes. Like, this is way a lot of detail that was not part of that particular episode. Yeah, that episode is with an author named Holly Tucker about um, her work writing a book about this subject, which I used for uh, as one of my sources. And it gets into a lot of other aspects of book writing and research and, and what was going on in the medical progression of humanity at the time. Uh, whereas I really, really wanted to kind of break down this whole narrative of Denise's sudden rise to fame in medicine and what that was all about and the things that were going on in Paris at the time in the medical community. Yeah. I imagine the, um, like, the subset of people who had somehow heard that earlier two-parter, but not part one of this, might be really small, but just in case. In the last episode, we talked about Denis' second animal-to-human transfusion, which took place at the home of Henri-Louis de Montmour. And today we're going to just jump right back into that moment in the winter of 1667. As you will recall, Denis and his accomplices had kidnapped the subject of this transfusion attempt. That was a man named Antoine Morois. 
And they had given him a transfusion of calf's blood against his will in an attempt to cure his mental illness. And when Morwam woke up the morning after the transfusion, he, who had been again an unwilling subject, did seem to have improved. He was more docile, and he was less prone to outbursts. In all likelihood, of course, he was probably just weakened from the ordeal of the night before, but Denis, in his zeal, took the change in temperament as a sign that he was really onto something, and that Morois could perhaps be cured completely if they gave him a second transfusion. The second transfusion was less tumultuous than the first, which had taken place just two days earlier. It was, once again, held at Mamor's home. But this time, at Denis' insistence, there were fewer spectators, which does seem like at least a cover-your-own-butt idea. (laughs) The few who were allowed were doctors and surgeons. Additionally, this patient, again, by no choice of his own, did not resist. Yeah, I think more than covering his tail, what he really wanted was, we, we discussed in the last episode that it was chaotic with that first one because there were so many people who wanted to be there and actually see what they believed could be history being made, that it actually kind of hindered Denis and MRA, his surgeon's abilities, to really perform the work they were doing. So I th- he was not afraid of um, bad press or conflict. So I think it had more to do with just like, I need people out of my way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emre could not find a vein in Marois's right arm. And he and Denis came up with a number of reasons that that would be, none of which, of course, related to their prior transfusion, which they had done on that arm. So they decided to use the left arm and they were successful. And they were able this time to get more calf's blood into Morois, but he once again had a bad reaction almost as soon as they began. This time, Morois was able to pretty calmly verbalize the sensations he was feeling. He described pain in his kidneys, a feeling that he was choking and that he was nauseated. And once again, the transfusion was stopped. Morois vomited several times over the next two hours before passing out. So we should mention up front that this next account is the way that Denis recorded the story. And that's that Morois, as they found him the next morning, seemed like a completely different man. Quiet, alert, polite, able to hold a conversation without any of the behavior that they had come to associate with him in the preceding months. He asked to see a priest so that he could give confession, which he did. And the priest was amazed by this transformation. Morhois' wife, Perrine Morhois, who had not known where her husband had been taken, was brought into the Mamor home, and she was shocked as well. The two of them were described as embracing, and Antoine Morhois described what he had been through. So incidentally, uh, if you remember from the last episode, we talk about Morhois having um, kind of developed his issues with his mental health as a result of having been kind of scorned and mocked in a love affair gone wrong. So you may be like, well, what is up with the wife? Uh, Morwa and Perrine had actually been married after he started having these issues. This marriage had been arranged by his family. They thought that the stability of a regular home life would cure him of his anguish. And Perrine, who had endured unending abuse from her husband, had actually been searching for him around Paris and learned of his involvement in Denis' experiment. 
through idle chatter on the street. And that was how she ended up in front of the Montmore estate. Jean-Baptiste Denis was convinced that he had just changed medicine forever and that he was about to be one of the most famous men in the world. That was sort of correct, although things did not play out the way he thought they were going to. So after being allowed to stay with her husband at Montmore's home for two weeks while Denis monitored his health, the Morois were sent home. Perrine was not convinced that Antoine was cured. She saw how different he was, but she also feared that this was not a permanent fix, and she was entirely correct. After two months, Morois' fever spiked, and his behavior reverted to the violence and unpredictability that had preceded his transfusions. Perrine went to Denis' home in Paris and demanded he give her husband a third transfusion. This time, the procedure was performed in the Morois home, where, curiously, Perrine already had everything arranged, including the needed tools for the transfusion and a new calf. This sounds incredibly suspicious, and it is, given that the Morois were pretty poor. Denis initially refused to do this, suspecting that something was up with all this, but Perrine showed the doctor the bruises she had from her husband's abuse. He acquiesced and went ahead with his transfusion, although by his own account, this entire scene really troubled him. And there were complications. As Denis and his surgeon Emery were preparing Morois, Morois had a seizure. Sometimes this is also written up as a series of seizures. They had already inserted a tube into his arm, and they had made an incision in his foot so that he could be bled of bad blood exiting the body just before this seizure happened. So as soon as it took place, they determined that they had to close all of his incisions. They had not at this point made any incisions in the animal, and the transfusion never happened. And then the next day, Antoine Morois was dead. Denis and Emery compared notes. They wanted to make sure they had not been the cause of his death. They also returned to the Morois home to speak with Perrine and get a full account of Antoine Morois' behavior and physical condition in the hours between when they left and when he died. She really did not cooperate. Emery attempted to begin an autopsy and an argument ensued. Perrine ejected the two men from her home Denise assured her that there would be an autopsy, but Perrine buried Antoine's body later on that day to thwart any such plan. Yeah, Denis returned to their house the next morning, and it was like, he's already buried. So, Morois' death was, in what sounds like a very macabre thing, welcomed by the old-fashioned Parisian doctors who had been suspicious of Denis and transfusion from the beginning. There was a feeling that at last this upstart's ambition had tripped him up. For a practice that was controversial to begin with, the death of Denis' most famed subject made even his most ardent supporters doubt their position. In a letter to the publisher of Philosophical Transactions, King Louis XIV's secretary, Henri Justel, wrote of Denis and Emery, quote, their mischance will discredit transfusion and no one will dare to try it in the future on men. Denis himself had wondered if Perrine had killed her husband and had used him and MRA to cover her tracks. Things just didn't add up. The surgical instruments and medical supplies that she had ready in their home, this new calf purchased and ready for the transfusions, all of this. 
two months after Marois' death, it was Perrine herself who finally answered these pretty puzzling questions for Denis. Sort of. Uh... Perrine Marois paid a visit to Denis, and she spilled her story, or at least part of it. She told him that a group of physicians had approached her after Antoine's death, offering her money to testify that Denis had killed him. But she also told Denis that if he couldn't help her financially, she would have to take their money. As had been the case in the Marois home, Denis and Perrine argued, and she left. His next step was to file a complaint against Marois' widow for extortion, as well as against the mystery physicians who attempted to bribe her. He could not name any man specifically. A hearing was held on April 17th of 1668. A judge was tasked with sorting out the accusations against Denis for having possibly murdered Marois and Denis' counter-complaint against Perrine Marois. Denis was the first witness who was called. He described all of the details of Marois' first two transfusions and how they had appeared to everyone to be a complete success. He also testified that the third transfusion had been halted before it even began because of Marois' seizure. And we're going to get into the testimony that was given by the widow Perrine Marois next. But before we do, let's take a quick breather and have a sponsor break. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for 
for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Karine Morois was the next person to be questioned after Denis, and she talked about how hard she tried to be a good and dutiful wife. She told the judge of how Antoine had once again become unpredictable just a few weeks after the seeming success of his transfusions at the Montmore estate. She had cared for him when he had come home from carousing and she had endured his abuse. And as part of this testimony, she also disclosed that she had consented to sexual intercourse with her husband on four occasions after they had returned home from their time in Paris. This was intended to be evidence of her devotion, but it actually undermined her case. Denis had expressly forbidden sexual activity as dangerous to Morois' health while he continued to recover. Denis had not wanted him drinking or carousing either, so basically this kind of helped Denis' case that he was not to blame for what had happened. The case continued to turn against Perrine Morois from there. Neighbors testified that, yes, the couple fought, and Antoine could be violent, but that Perrine had also struck her husband. In 17th century France, that was pretty damning. There was also suspicion among the neighbors, but no evidence that Perrine might have been poisoning Antoine. This was at a time in Paris when poisonings were pretty common, and so accusations of poisonings were also rampant. So suspicious neighbors in that regard were, that was almost a foregone conclusion. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about this when we started working on it. Um, and it suddenly overlapped so much that we've talked about on Criminalia this season. <laughs> It's like, I can't get away from poisoning. Poisoning everywhere. It's just everywhere I turn. So the police chief, appointed by King Louis XIV, Nicolas de Rarigny, took particular interest in this poisoning testimony because his efforts to curb the city's poisoning problem had been just exhausting and frustrating for him. And both Denis and Emery told the judge that they had heard Antoine Morois claim prior to their first transfusion treatment with him that he believed his wife was trying to kill him. So despite everyone having believed that Morois was a madman during that time, this still was very, very bad for Perrine. So it was believed that Mrs. Morois had been serving her husband arsenic and soup in small doses and that that would kill him slowly and in a way that presented as any number of other common ailments. And incidentally, 
being fed arsenic in small amounts can also cause delirium and seizures. Based on a whole lot of circumstantial evidence, Perrine Morois was charged with murder and taken to a prison cell, but we just don't know what happened to her after that. The judge did believe that they had sussed out what had happened and that Perrine had plotted against her husband, but he also thought there was more to the story. He really wanted more answers about how Perrine had gotten the poison. Arsenic was readily available for purchase as a means of controlling rodent populations, but the Marois were by all accounts penniless, so he believed that someone must have provided it. And the mystery physicians she had told Denis about had also apparently spoken with at least one of her neighbors, offering to pay for a sworn statement about Morois' death implicating Denis. So Denis was cleared of all charges. The judge ruled that Morois had not died due to negligence on Jean-Baptiste Denis' part, but because he had been poisoned with arsenic and that Perrine Morois might have been abetted by anti-transfusion saboteurs. We do not know the names of the saboteur doctors, who Denis referred to as the, quote, enemies of the experiment. Numerous members of the Parisian medical establishment had spoken out about Denis' procedures, and many of them have been theorized as likely culprits. The specific information has been lost, uh, if any had been named, as have the court records from Denis' trial, although some of the supporting documentation remains. But it did appear, definitely, that other men of medicine in Paris were so mortified by transfusion that they would rather kill a patient than risk the experiment succeeding. Some of the possible suspects, Pierre Martin de la Martinière, Uh, He had written numerous letters to high-ranking officials describing transfusion as, quote, directly to the contrary and opposite of God's wishes because it destroys his living images. Martinier had also written to Denis that Satan was revealing himself in Denis' work. Another man who had become friends with Martinier through their mutual disdain for transfusion, and Denis in particular, was Guillaume Lamy. Lamy had also written a number of letters to various doctors in Paris about the horrors of transfusion. And after Morois' death, he wrote a letter to a doctor named René Moreau, sounding almost giddy about Denis' demise, saying, quote, the miserable adventure of the madman's death will be enough to overturn all of his beautiful imaginations and to ruin entirely his high hopes. Both Lamy and Martinier were mentioned in a piece of writing by a lawyer named Louis de Basril. It was titled Reflections by Louis de Basriel, lawyer in Parliament on disputes concerning transfusion. He described how divided the medical community had become on this issue to the point that things seemed downright dangerous, and he believed the two named doctors had been conspiring against Denis. Uh, Yeah, if you go back in the archive and listen to the episodes with Holly Tucker, she talks about discovering this piece of writing, which had not really been known about prior to her research on the book. It had just been kind of sitting in archives. So it was kind of a big moment in terms of of really kind of solving what had played out here. But to return to the events of April 17, 1668, the next part of the ruling that the judge made was far less favorable for Denis. The judge declared it illegal to use animal blood in transfusions to humans in the case's wrap-up in 1668, unless that usage was sanctioned by the Faculty of Medicine of Paris. And that meant that the very men who had been vocally decrying the use of transfusion were the ones who decided if it could be done, which they were absolutely never going to do. 
So we should mention that the entire idea of transfusion was anathema at the time, not because of the scientific problems with it. Those existed, but there still wasn't enough knowledge about the workings of blood and the circulatory system to really come to the conclusion that it was or wasn't a scientifically sound idea at that point. The fears had more to do with moral and religious debate. There were concerns that someone who had a transfusion of animal blood might experience transmutation and develop characteristics of the animal from which the blood was sourced. Yeah, we mentioned uh, earlier on in talking about the story that there was a patient who claimed that he was taking on animal characteristics and how problematic it was. And this whole thing brought up arguments about identity and what it means to be human and what it might mean to change the human form and whether this was reaching too far into science to places that were really the domain of God. Another layer of the religious issues that surrounded transfusion and its debate in predominantly Catholic France was the fact that Protestant England had started doing it first, so it was automatically viewed with a little bit of suspicion. It's also important to note that it was not acceptable in any sort of consensus to take blood from other humans. Things like dissections and autopsies were generally performed on the bodies of people who had been criminals. It's a trend that we have talked about on the show before. While there were physicians and scientists on both sides of that debate, many, like Denis, thought that animals were a better option. So really, this ruling just shut down any experiments or work in transfusions completely. Two years later, the letter of the law made the use of blood from humans as an option not a matter of inference, but clearly spelled out. All transfusions were banned in France. So for Denis, this ruling... Uh, in the initial case, was a huge blow. It meant that the work that he was invested in, that he had made his name famous in Paris with, was essentially over. We'll talk about Denis' efforts to be able to continue his transfusion work after we first pause for a word from our sponsors. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Jean-Baptiste Denis argued against the decision that animal-to-human transfusions were banned, and he actually tried to rally the medical community to the cause. He kind of used his successes as evidence that, no, we really should continue doing this work. And he started a petition to try to overturn the ruling, but he got fewer than 10 signatures from the physicians of Paris. He next got Henri-Louis de Montmour, his financial supporter, involved in this campaign. Montmore, through his rank and wealth, was on better footing to try to use the French legal system to his advantage than Denis was. He was still considered an outsider with a mixed reputation. Additionally, Montmore had a law degree, and he had worked as an appointed government official. And this approach had some success. With Montmore's assistance, Denis was able to take his case to Parliament. And the strategy in their approach was really pretty savvy. Even though this was technically an appeal, they opted to plead their case in the Grand Chambre. This is where issues of guilds and hospitals and universities were heard. And this was really smart for two reasons. One, it kind of sidestepped all the seedier criminal aspects of the Marois case, and it let Denis focus on the ability to pursue transfusion research as part of advancing science and medicine. Two, a case that came before the Grand Chambre just a year earlier about using chemical remedies in medicine had gone against the wishes of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Paris. The conservative school had wished to keep chemical remedies out of medical practice, but Parliament had ruled them permissible. And Denis was hoping that his case would have a similar outcome in disregarding old guard physicians in favor of progress. The trial convened on November 28, 1669. The public was not allowed in, but the trial had been publicized all over the city, and it was as anticipated as any piece of entertainment. Of course, Denis was famous, and this work was controversial. 
The death of Marois and the twists and turns in the prior hearing had been the talk of the city for months. So people from the court of King Louis XIV, all the way down to the lowest class, were really eager to see what happened next. The case was presented before Judge Mathieu Mollet. The legal case made by Denis' representative, Chrétien de Lamognon, was described as being exceptionally good. Uh, I think it's cited in one instance as being a masterpiece. But despite the preparation and the presentation and everyone talking about what a strong case it was, Mollet refused to overturn the previous decision. The two physicians we mentioned a moment ago, Lamy and Martiniere, never faced any real investigation regarding whether they had been involved in Morois' death or in trying to bribe the widow Perrine to help them ruin Denis. Lamy was uh, suspected by some of his peers as possibly wanting revenge on Denis after the two men had a public argument in the street. But Lemmy did what was probably the smart thing. As accusations started to really bubble, he swore that he would neither speak nor write of the matter any longer, saying, quote, I think I have said enough. And that was that for him. Yeah, he's not one of those people who says, I'm never going to talk about this again, and then tweets 16 more things. They write a 400-page book about it. (laughs) Uh, Martinier was far less restrained. Not only did he continue to denounce Denis and transfusion, he also wrote that he had met with Perrine Morois to discuss whether she should seek legal action against Denis for her husband's death. He also named the apothecary where Perrine had gotten her arsenic. This essentially is like a confession, but it was never uh, pursued as such. He referred to Denis as a transfusionist monster, and in a letter to Louis XIV's first minister of state, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, he suggested that anyone, quote, whose inclination is to pull and push blood should basically be killed. I think the actual phrasing is that they should be taken to the Caribbean and sacrificed. After that second judge refused to overturn the judgment against transfusion, Martiniere seems to have stepped away from medicine entirely. Following the appeal trial, Mamour fell into a serious depression. He, like Denis, had lost his dream. But without transfusion, his science academy could not keep going. It was the last setback. Accounts by his family indicate that he had to be cajoled into letting people care for him if he would not care for himself. And he never really returned to his former self. His son took over the family finances, and that was disastrous. Henri-Louis de Mamour died in 1679. As for Denis, after the appeal, he kind of went back to the life he had before his sudden rise to fame, teaching medical students in his home. He also turned his attention to judicial astrology, in which the measurements of movements of heavenly bodies were being used to predict the future. Denis was critical of the practice, writing, quote, "...predictions will always keep you in a state of suspense, in a state of impatient hope, and this hope will deprive you of everything that is good and agreeable in life." So clearly, by the time this was all over, he was not the same ambitious man he had been when he first got into medicine. Jean-Baptiste Denis died in Paris in 1704. He was 69. After France's anti-transfusion rulings, other European countries followed suit. Even in places where there weren't rulings or laws against it, transfusions were abandoned by the scientific community as an area of exploration for nearly 150 years. There have been some references to Philadelphia Dr. Philip Singh Physic achieving the first successful human blood transfusion in 1795 in some sources. 
They also note he didn't publish any information about his work, and that makes it a little bit difficult to verify. In a 1942 article about transfusion history, Dr. Cyrus C. Sturgis wrote that the earliest mention he ever found of the physic transfusion was in the Philadelphia Journal of Medicine and Physical Sciences from an 1825 abstract, which mentions it as a footnote. Physic was notoriously light on record-keeping and writing up his work, so this case continues to be just a footnote. Yeah, we don't really know if, if that ever happened. The first recorded instance of human blood being used to save a patient is in 1818. That procedure was performed by obstetrician James Blundell, who was frustrated at having lost patients to postpartum hemorrhaging. He wrote, quote, I have seen a woman dying for two or three hours together, convinced in my own mind that no known remedy could save her. The sight of these moving cases led me to transfusion. Blundell had started his experiments somewhat as Denis and other predecessors had with animals and humans, although his tests involved giving human blood to dogs with mortal results. He quickly determined that blood from one class of animal could not be used on another. His success rate with human-to-human transfusions was only 50%, but it got the attention of the medical community and jump-started the field of transfusion science again. One of the big developments in the century that followed, and what is often cited as ushering in the modern era of blood transfusions, was the discovery of what became the ABO blood group system. Austrian doctor Karl Landsteiner identified three types, which he called A, B, and C, beginning in 1900. His first publications on it were 1901, so you'll also see that cited as the date. The A group had one type of antigen, the B group had another, and the C group, which was eventually changed to O, Uh, sometime later, had no antigens. The AB group, which has both A and B antigens, was identified by Alfred de Costello and Adriano Sterli in 1902. Landsteiner went on to win the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1930 based on his work with blood groups. With that one piece of the blood puzzle figured out, things progressed rapidly with large steps forward developed during times of war, New ways to transfer blood from patient to patient were developed, as well as better storage and preservation methods for blood. It eliminated the need for the donor and the recipient to be in close physical proximity. The first blood bank opened in St. Petersburg, Russia, which was Leningrad at the time, in 1932. The first blood bank in the U.S. opened at Cook County Hospital in Chicago in 1937. The American Association of Blood Banks formed in 1947 and established the AABB Clearinghouse, that is now called the National Blood Exchange, in 1953. And this created a system that enabled blood banks to exchange blood to meet the needs of patients around the country. The AABB also published Standards for a Blood Transfusion Service, which evolved into Standards for Blood Banks and Transfusion Services on subsequent printings. Today, transfusions are a vital part of medicine. While whole blood transfusions are still performed, it's more efficient to separate the blood into its various components for medical use, and that way one donation can be used for multiple patients who have different needs. According to the Red Cross, an estimated 36,000 units of red blood cells are needed in the U.S. every day, and nearly 21 million blood components are transfused in the U.S. each year. And according to the World Health Organization, 118.4 million blood donations are collected around the world annually. 40% of those donations come from high-income countries. 
And while Jean-Baptiste Denis had to abandon the procedure that made him famous in Paris for a few years in the 1660s, he does actually have a legacy that reaches us in modern medicine, one that most people probably have in their first aid kit at home. In his later work, he developed styptic. That is correct, he invented a means to stop bleeding. Although he doesn't really get credited with that invention <laughs> Very much. Even if you look up, like, uh, if you do a, a web search for inventor of styptic, I found nothing. Yeah. Um. So it was more a matter of uh, using the research that had been done in his biographies. It's a, an interesting story. It's such a um an intrigue story at a level unlike <laughs> unlike we have ever quite. Uh, probably not, I wouldn't say we've ever quite, but it's not terribly common. We talk a lot about scientific developments and some of the conflicts around them, but very rarely do they evolve into a murder case that has twists and turns and like a shadow group of people orchestrating things. And Yeah, yeah. Uh, ultimately putting an end to a part of medical science for yeah. more than a century. <laughs> I'm also interested in... Um... Uh, in how the moral and religious objections to transfusion evolved over time. Because, like, there are still people living today who will uh, who will not have transfusions for religious or moral reasons. Um, but not, like, with the same explanation as why it was un- unacceptable in the 17th century for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I, I this is pure speculation on my part. I haven't really done research into this. I think the work that was being done in obstetrics that saved a number of mothers early on in the, the 19th century uh, and that work being published was probably a pretty significant shift in the perception um, because it is hard to argue against something that is saving a, a mother and not orphaning a child. Mm-hmm. That would be my guess. Uh, for less guesswork, though, I have fun email. Yay! Since we're starting a new year, I'm trying to stick to fun things in the email. Uh, and it is about something I'm hoping to do this year, which is Rougarou Fest. Uh, this is from our listener, Mandy, who writes, First, I want to say what a bright light your podcast has been for me for many years, and especially right now. I had a baby back in June, and between a newborn and being stuck at home, things can feel awfully difficult at times. But your podcast has helped me feel more to the wider world in history, which has been immensely helpful for my mental health. Uh, congratulations. Also, I can't imagine how stressful it would be to uh, become a new parent in the midst of a pandemic. So I'm glad things seem to be going well. She says, I'm writing about your episode on three hellhounds, specifically the part about the Rougarou and Rougarou Fest. I am from South Louisiana and currently live in New Orleans. At your Bob Hope live show at the World War II Museum, I was the person in the audience who had lost her voice. I also work in the nonprofit sector, and I am friends with Jonathan Foray. When I heard you mention him on the show, I immediately texted him to let him know that Rougarou Fest was being featured on your podcast, and I sent him the episode, and he was thrilled. It feels worth mentioning that he is as delightful as you might imagine a person who created a Rougarou festival would be. Uh, And then he has a a pet nutria named Beignet, which I love. (laughs) Um, She says, I appreciated your showcasing the festival. Too often, Louisiana is reduced to a sort of muddled version of Bourbon Street writ large, but as the festival highlights, we have a rich mix of communities, some might say a gumbo, forgive me, and the Bayou region is home to an incredible amount of pre-colonial and American history, some of which is literally disappearing before our eyes. The festival supports efforts to teach and learn all about Louisiana's disappearing coast and heritage, so it felt especially apropos for stuff you missed in history. Uh, And then she gives 
gives us some suggestions. Um, I, I thank you for this lovely email. I'm so glad that um, the the folks that put Rugaru Fest together were okay with that and liked it because you always worry when you mention something contemporary that someone will go, you're a jerk. That's not correct. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it, it happens. Um, and I really am intent on going this year, uh, presuming that we are in a place where travel is available because it sounds like the best time ever. Um, so I'm especially knowing how steeped in history the whole thing is. I'm into it. If you would like to write to us, tell us about more festivals we can put on our docket <laughs> after after travel becomes a reality again. Uh, you can do that at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, that is easy as pie. You can do it on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 